Empire and Underworld, Captivity in French Guyana, historian Randa Spieler tells of the transformation of a slave plantation economy into a destination for metropolitan convicts in the eight decades following the French Revolution. However, unlike British Australia, French Guyana failed to turn from penal colony to economically viable territory, and today remains a sparsely populated overseas department of France. The cover photograph of a forested riverbank shrouded in mist evokes the continual disappearance of human settlement. Spieler approaches this erasure not as a failure of French colonial policy, but rather as an expression and product of its design. Her book is a marvelous legal history that shows how the laws of empire produced a colonial topography, shaped its inhabitants, and played a decisive part in their ongoing destruction. In understanding laws and penal colonies as sites of experimentation, where new methods of subjugation and new subjectivities were produced, Spieler picks up Michel Foucault's seminal work of 1975, Discipline and Punish. Yet whereas Foucault saw the emergence of a disciplinary society in which the techniques of the prison were multiplied and scattered throughout, Spieler insists on the importance of certain spaces, certain targets, and certain laws. She insists on the importance of margins, borders, of non-citizens, and of the non-free. In short, she insists on the importance of colony and its imperial context to understanding the development of modern rights, laws, and space. In this way, she makes a significant contribution not only to the history of colonialism, but to central debates in social and critical theory. And it is in recognition of this achievement that her book won the George L. Mossa Prize for European Intellectual History and the J. Russell Major Prize for French History of the American Historical Society in 2013. In the following, you will hear an interesting interview that I recorded earlier today with Miranda, in which we discuss the relationship of these peculiar experiments in penal colonization and the history of race, of utopian thought, of revolution, and even of the relationship of this entire complex that her book explores to Guantanamo Bay and its peculiar legal system. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Intellectual History. I'm your host, Todd Weir. This week, it's my pleasure to speak with Miranda Spieler in Paris, who has just written a wonderful book, Empire and Underworld, Captivity in French Guyana. And um, first of all, let me, let me welcome you to the show, Miranda. Thank you. It's great to be here, Todd. Great. And um, I'll ask you our traditional opening question, which is um, uh, if you could tell the listeners a bit about how you arrived at your interest in this subject, uh, you know, what formative experiences you might have had um, that brought you um, to this work. Well, um, like many people who now work on uh, colonial history, I began as a French historian um, with an interest in the 18th century um, in the beginning. And so this project actually grew out of a, a curiosity um, about uh, French Guiana, which was, as, as some people know, the scene of a major colonial disaster in the aftermath of the seven Year's War when uh, 12,000 uh, Alsatian peasants were conducted to their um, death uh, in a, uh, an apparently failed colonial scheme. But um, as I began to look at the place, it seemed 
that an awful lot of things have happened in French Guiana and very little had been written about it. And a lot of what the book is basically evolved out of uh, a series of uh, problems on the ground that I experienced when I started um, researching the topic, um, namely um, a lack of sources. And so a lot of what I grapple with in the book has to do with my own, uh, these were attempts to resolve uh, frustrations and obstacles that I encountered as I attempted to research a place that uh, seemed to be the scene of a lot of things and very little written about. Um, in terms of my uh, formative experiences, I think um, looking back uh, now, it was important that um, but right before graduate school and in, in for a brief period in graduate school, I worked as an assistant to the um, writer Susan Bontag, who was interested in things concerning the visibility of suffering at the time. And um, perhaps as a way of thinking about the same topic from a, a different angle, I became interested in that same period in kinds of suffering that cannot be represented. And I think that that topic or that theme really shaped the project. Um, yeah. yeah um, I wanted to just pick up on, on the question of sources, which you said presented a problem. And I, and I think it actually turned into something that you turned to, to an advantage um, to uh, make some interesting methodological claims. Um, you're, you're, you write this book and I want to, I want to congratulate you on, on the wonderful um, control of language that you have. And, um, the way in which you create very clear and unique perspectives throughout this book, um, uh, I think also rests with your, um, your strong choices in language. Um, the book is quite removed from the subjects uh, of, of this story. I mean, the, the prisoners, the slaves, the former slaves, and so on, and doesn't really allow for any identification with them. Um, yet at the same time, I think that the poetic tone that you have really allows a kind of intimacy to be created for the reader, um, which is a um, which I found to be a very striking part of of the experience of reading the book. Um, but I, I'm curious about how, uh, if you could say a little bit more about the problem of sources and um, and yeah. how, how you uh, you know how did this change your approach to writing and to thinking about historical subjects, right? I guess, well, sure. There, there are a couple things I can say about that. First of all, um, the, the problem with sources differed with, depending on who I was talking about in the book. So um, when I'm talking about slaves and freed people, there were many more sources available, um, including, was a, there's a traditional range of sources, notarial documents and things like that, which allow you to access those kinds of subjects. Um, and I use those in the book. The big problem for me was, um, on the one hand, uh, an extremely mobile population of uh, ex-convicts in metropolitan France, right, who don't have, don't live in villages that you that allow them to be accessed by traditional kinds of sources. And then in French Guiana, dealing with the same people who have been so stripped of their legal personalities that they actually can't be part of uh, normal kinds of archives that people would consult when writing um, history from below. So um, my particular um, archival problems really differed in, according to the group that I was writing about, with, but with respect to convicts, it was extreme. Um, and so what I ended up having to do um, in that case was uh, to 
really structure the book around the idea of the legal subject to construct a different kind of subject who was um, who, whom I could track through through legal acts and um, jurisprudence, but who was uh, not always a single individual. Um, and I think that that actually allowed me to draw some useful connections between uh, freed slaves and freed convicts and non-European immigrants, because I was looking at structures of law when I was analyzing the subject and not necessarily at individual people. I do want to say that I did hunt for scraps whenever I could. Um, there is also another set of problems that I dealt with, um, which are because um, I was also very concerned about um, objectifying people uh, who were undergoing uh, forms of, uh, well, violence and um, um, uh, different kinds of subjugation. And I was very concerned that in a book with so few sources that I not... Um, uh, that so few sources relevant to specific individuals that I not uh, fill the book with little morsels about people being hurt, um, mm-hmm. and so um, that actually was um, uh, was a real concern. I, I did have documentation about people being beaten, for example, but I felt that this should not be the only way in which we got to know certain people from the past. And so I, I, um, it's true that I, I had to make some ethical choices about what kinds of things I should include um, when talking about people who were, uh, I guess it's, you can call them marginal. It's just, just a way of saying that they were being hurt a lot. Um, so that's that. So, so I, I guess I, I took up an approach that was, on the one hand, an, an attempt to solve a very acute archival problem with regard to uh, people who can't buy or sell or marry or um, intrude themselves in any way into normal civil archives. But I also wanted to avoid uh, using exclusively police documents or um, kind of um, disciplinary files that would uh, look, would sort of depict the same individual exclusively through the eyes of the penal administration. So, um, so I tried to be um, uh, protective in some way of, of bodies of the people that I was, I was writing about. Um, and I also was really confronted by a lot of suffering in the book, and I felt it, that it was important to be unsentimental about the, the suffering. Um, and so that may be, um, I think I, I hear something, some acknowledgement of that in the tone, about the tone, but it's certainly not an, an unemotional book. It's just a book that I tried to make unsentimental because of the magnitude of the suffering. Uh, um, I wanted to talk briefly about the introduction, because um, it's through the introduction that we really learn, I think, um, how you are engaging with some key social, political theorists of the 20th century. Um, yeah. And um, and it's really, I, you know, it's a real aid to us in understanding your intervention in, in various debates. Um, you mentioned Marc Bloch, Michel Foucault, Hannah Arendt as, as key figures, um, a few others as well, but I'll just mention those. Um, and I think uh, it's important for the listeners to bring in these figures um, in order to understand a bit about what your project is is trying to do. Um, I was thinking we could perhaps save Hannah Arendt for, for later in the discussion, but it might be useful at this point for you to mention uh, Marc Bloch and, um, and Michel Foucault and how those two 
um, aspects of their thought have have inspired this work. So maybe we could start actually with the Mark Bloch, since that's how you begin your book. Sure. Um, I I begin there. Um, actually, I remember reading um, this book in in a seminar led by. Um, Jacques Revel when I was working on my dissertation. And uh, the book really um, became significant to me in a very practical way um, once I was uh, in French Guiana. And it's pretty, this is, uh, uh, this is because um, what much of what uh, Mark Bloch talks about in uh, uh, what in English is translated as the historian's craft, I think, is is that uh, a way of interpreting um, physical evidence. And at that point in my project, when I finally went to French Guiana, I had really been struggling with the silence of, of the people that I was trying to study. And I had fancied that I would go to French Guiana and it would become clear through my study of the landscape. Uh, and I was thinking that Mark Bloch would provide a guide. So I actually had this book as a kind of guidebook to, you know, a sort of, I imagined that it was a sort of how-to guide for my, for my project. And I got to French Guiana and um, confronted um, the fact very quickly that all of the places that I was reading about were more or less forests at this point. So in other words, rather than having a, a set of traces on the land that indicated uh, a history of human settlement, like the way you would picture, say, fields in Picardy, I was constru- confronted with uh, secondary forest. Um, and so I decided that I would trust Mark Bloch in a certain way and say, um, okay, well, what you have to explain is the construction of forest. <laughs> um, and that I would regard, uh, I would look for a way of um, analyzing how human settlement could produce an apparent wilderness. So um, rather than, say, for example, thinking about the forest of French Guiana as, an, as a sign of colonial failure, which others have uh, have have suggested. Um, I decided to look at the forest in French Guiana as a as a human product. Uh, so that's actually um, that was a very significant um, insight. A very at, at a relatively early stage in the project. I then had to figure out what kinds of structures could produce a wilderness, and uh, that question led me to think that I should study law, which was, by the way, at, in first-day thinking, a very vital part of the historical um, uh, project. So I, I don't think that there was is anything extremely surprising about studying the law, but I do think that, um, it, at least when I started working on this project, it wasn't as central as it perhaps has since become to the way historians work on, on problems in colonial settings. Um, in any case, um, so moving to the, to Foucault, it's an obvious uh, central pr- person to engage with in, in a project of this kind. I should say that um, with respect to Foucault, um, the most obvious thing to say is that um, Foucault doesn't really um, engage the story of the penal colony. Um, but I think that's a kind of, um, it's kind of an unsatisfactory way of, of, of engaging with, with his work. So what I should say is that I felt that um, there was a, a tension between uh, 
Foucault's work in Sarvier uh, Punir uh, uh, and in his uh, other work, certainly his lectures for the Collège de France um, about um, uh, that are collected as Il faut défendre la société. And it seemed to me that on the one hand, Foucault in his more popular work wanted to argue for the emergence of something called the, the carceral archipelago, the sort of merging of of the of the prison with the world through a variety of structures like uh, orphanages and 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 uh, workhouses, and on the one so that uh, and on the other hand, in his work in Il faut défendre la société, it seemed very much that there was a kind of uh, internal mechanism of civil war that was continuously going on and uh, and resulting in the extreme uh, uh, marginalization or even extermination of certain groups. So. Um, Ultimately, I argue in the book that we should opt for uh, the Foucault of Il faut défendre la société in understanding the story of the penal colony. Um, and to the extent that the carceral archipelago figures in the book, it does so at, in the final chapter of the book, which is entitled uh, uh, Metastasis, uh, which is... Um, about how the colony of French Guiana, an apparently distinct place, uh, became one with the penal colony uh, in the uh, second half of the 19th century. Yeah, I think. I mean, just to go back to the to the to the Marc Bloch um, uh, discussion. I mean, what I, what I found interesting was the, uh, the the notion that you just expressed that you wanted to investigate the the forest. Um, as the product of this colonial legal system. Um, and, and I thought it was wonderful because you, in a sense, there's a juxtaposition with, with a, let's say, a Whiggish history of Australia, which would be, uh, from penal colony to thriving, um, economic colony, like as, as though this, uh, uh, oppressive penal system was productive of something. Uh, whereas in your reading, as I, as I see it anyway, um, you know the, the the productivity of this penal system does not necessarily lie in its economic output. Um, yeah, far from that. Yeah, <laughs> in a sense, the opposite, and and that in a sense, the you know the ghosts of all of these um, convicts and and various unfree persons, um, you know, evoke a different type of productivity, um, but it's not not one that that has a sort of Whiggish narrative attached to it. Um, and and I I found that quite an interesting insight. Um, and it also is something you could say you could use, I suppose, to potentially criticize a Foucauldian understanding of power as being productive, um, because my sense is that in Foucault uh, he sees power as a as a you know as a positive productive force, and and also its forms of of uh, domination and oppression. Whereas in your story, it doesn't necessarily seem that power, legal systems, incarceration are always productive. Um, well, it, they produce um, systems. I mean, the, it, what, I think it was productive of a complex system of domination. Um, so that's what I was analyzing. Um, and so to, 
power is productive, but it produces, I mean, for me, the metaphor that sort of captures what I was trying to say about the place was, uh, happens when I was descri- describing the beginnings of what becomes a penal town, which is called Saint-Laurent de Maroni, and it's on the banks of the Maroni River, uh, and it subsequently becomes known as the kind of capital of the penal colony. And um, what 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 struck me in analyzing the documents relevant to the growth of the town in the 1860s was that all of the labor uh, in this town went into the construction of the town. <laughs> in mm. other words, <laughs> there was no there was no emergence of free life. It was the continuous building of the town, you know, which in which every building had bars on it. Uh, so certainly power produces something. It produces something enormous, but it produces a system of domination that's kind of chasing its tail. Um, and, um, you know, the, the story about Foucault definitely feeds in the story about what power produces with reference to the subject you know, to, to what degree does power produce the subject is actually a good question with regard to this book. Um, that was something that I, I thought about a lot, particularly when I was talking about people after slavery, um, uh, free, freed slaves. And I felt that uh, just in the context of the 1850s, um, power in French Guiana, as it was being organized through the penal colony, bizarrely assisted the freed slave population um, in achieving um, a certain kind of autonomy because they are relatively uh, quickly uh, becoming a propertied group where they can acquire property. So in a sense, they achieve a certain status as legal subjects, but at the same time that happens, they they are um, increasingly under the uh, sort of administrative control of a penal apparatus and also subject to a tremendous number of diseases that are killing people off that are coming from prisoners who are not under quarantine. So um, I felt that um, power certainly produces something, but what it doesn't produce are um, uh, lucrative estates. Yes. Um, I thought uh, this is a, a great introduction. I, I think perhaps for the listeners, it would be it'd be nice now to be introduced into some of the, you know, the sequence of of, uh, of these unfree persons who arrive in French Guiana. Um, you, each chapter, starting from the the chapter dealing with the French Revolution, takes us really through a succession of populations, and you and you look at how legal systems emerge to deal with these populations, and then borrow from one another and, and evolve in an ongoing process. Um, could you, could you take us through a few of these, uh, these, these sure. populations, perhaps beginning really with, uh, you know, the, the arrival of the, um, enemies of the French revolution. Sure. Well, the book is organized as a study that starts in 1789 and goes to uh, around 1870. So the first group of people that I deal with are, uh, are, uh, enemies during the French Revolution, in particular, uh, dep- the deportable group of priests. And in this kind of secondary move in that section of the book, I deal with um, uh, the free black population of French Guiana during the same period. And the reason it's, 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 I need to do that is that the 
priests who are deported to French Guiana are deported to a colony where the slaves have just been emancipated and have nominally become citizens. Um, okay, so in the when I move to the 19th century, um, I kind of set up the really large penal colony that, that takes shape uh, uh, then by trying to understand what kinds of people uh, inspired the creation of that system. And so I start from I start by analyzing the problem of the ex-convict in the early 19th century um, and suggest that uh, the, the invention of the penal colony under uh, Louis Napoleon uh, happened because of a desire not to move prisoners someplace, but to eliminate the, the group of people that prisoners become, namely <laughs> ex-convicts. Uh, so, um, so, so I studied actually that group in some detail because I wanted to show to my readers that uh, France was becoming a place that could no longer contain ex-convicts by the middle of the 19th century. And then I moved to French Guiana um, to discuss events that are happening at the same time, um, just as while France uh, prepares to deport its hard labor, hard labor prisoners um, to French Guiana, that very colony has just uh, emancipated the slaves. So I try to deal with the problem of slave emancipation and other groups related to emancipated slaves uh, in setting up the problem of the penal colony. And later chapters of the book try to deal with collision uh, between um, uh, prisoners, ex-convicts, uh, freed slaves, and uh, a few other groups of interest in the colony, including um, uh, non-European immigrants, uh, mainly from Africa, and also um, uh, maroon populations on the Moroni River who um, who lived in proximity to uh, penal set settlements. Very good. Um, well, we, let's go. I'll come back to a few of those. Uh, uh, I have some questions about those different groups. Um, I, I, I wanted to um, mention you have a you have a chapter on uh, utopian social schemes and uh, and penal colonies, uh, which is a fascinating um, chapter, and it's a good example of something that you really I think do throughout the book, which is create these often in one sentence these these very sort of pithy kind of almost we almost think of like a dialectical image where you're connecting um, uh, things that one wouldn't necessarily put together. Um, these little ironic connections that are, um, you know, made without any sarcasm uh, whatsoever. Um, I just give you one example. I, I picked out of one chapter. Um, you're talking about a, I, I assume is a, um, someone building a prison town, uh, Balanche, um, Balanche discovered a method for perfecting society in the legal incapacity of convicts and in the Code Penal du Bagne, the special law of the arsenal prison. Um, so it's this notion that uh, prison reformers could uh, could look to utopian schemes to get ideas for building prisons or vice versa. Somebody with a utopian vision for the future might take something out of a penal system um, can you explain yeah. the, guy, the, the the context in Guyana, the story there? Well, the context there, is, it was very odd. 
he was very he was very interested in the capacity. Well, what is it? In order to create a utopian scheme, basically, you have two options. You can actually move into nowhere, which is not possible, or you can you need to, or you can you need a strategy for digging out a place in nearby that you can govern by laws of any kind you want, right? Um, you can't create a perfect society using the laws of your own country, or at least so says a utopian. So you need to find a way of hollowing out some space so that you can rule it however you'd like. So, um, so what I was suggesting in that passage is that uh, legal exceptionality, rather than be- being a troubling thing for Balanche, right, a-, a legally exceptional zone, far from being troubling for this utopian theorist, is um, ideal because uh, a legally exceptional system is a way of digging out space so that you can fill it up, up with something else. It's a way of creating a kind of legal bubble that you can fill with the perfect laws that you wish to apply there. And so when he looked to the coup uh, penal de bagne, it was because in France, in the the prisons uh, that the Navy set up in the ports of France, prisoners were not subject to the law of the land. They were subject to a completely different law created by the Navy. And so uh, for that reason, Balanche, the utopian, admired these prisons because they offered a model for how to dig out parts of your own country and fill them up with a different kind of law. Well, that's a, that's really, a, I suppose that's also a, just a central theme of the book is is the way in which these uh, spaces are created in the Guyanese context that allows for these legal experiments um, I think repeatedly, actually, you, you talk about these uh, sort of almost nodules of exceptional law and so on. Um, it's, yeah. I, I should say something about that because um, it is true that the book does talk about legal exceptionality a lot, but I, I do want to say that I hoped that I called the, the meaning of legal exceptionality into question in the book since what I tried to show was that a lot of things that start off as exceptional become normal and are normalized by the system. And so there isn't a really stable definition of what exception means. Right. Well, you, you know, you do a very very nice job of, of moving from the, these naval prisons in France into Guyana and showing how these practices are are brought over and um, transferred, moved um, and so on. Also, you bring in the Algerian context at some point. Um, is there is there anything else that uh, you draw out of this connection between social utopian thinking in the 1830s and the prisons um, beyond this u- utility of the prison as a as a zone in which one can introduce one's own laws? Um, well, I, I guess you could probably say uh, something about uh, the way those kinds of ideas worked out with respect to colonial governance. Um, for me, um, at least uh, in the period after emancipation, the scramble from the administrative point of view becomes how do you govern um these new citizens in a way that will allow us to still to um, uh, uh, 
have uh, uh, powers over them that would not necessarily uh, apply to uh, citizens in France. And so uh, early 19th century thinking about um, hollow spaces seems to me very important to understanding um, how uh, uh, post-emancipation society, in the French context at least, uh, takes shape. Um, so that's, uh, and in the, particularly in the French, French Guiana context, uh, there's a direct connection because, uh, it looks as though, um, <clears throat> the, the penal colony is actually, uh, nourishing, um, local ideas about how to govern, um, uh, freed slaves in the aftermath of emancipation. Let's let's move to the the question of um, of of race um, and yeah. slaves and so on. I mean, you, you talk about the threat posed by ex convicts um, within France and the need to to export this threat uh, to Guyana, which is something I must say, even after reading the, ch- the chapters, I still didn't entirely make sense to me why they were posed such an enormous threat. But maybe we can leave that aside. You talk about this fascinating group of. of former slaves or, or descendants of Dutch slaves, the Boni, uh, yeah. who were a, a group of, of uh, ex-slaves who then moved into the hinterland of, of Guyana and lived there. Um, and they were in this French territory, or at least the French claimed this territory where they lived. Why did they pose such a threat? Uh, they were not a physical threat, were they? No. I mean, they're not really a threat so much as um, uh, an apparent reservoir of uh, of labor after uh, the emancipation of the slaves, who then, um, whom the, the French would like to control. There's also a lot of fantasy going on in the minds of these young lieutenants who are sent out uh, by the Navy to French Guiana and um, wind up with the task of being camp guards. Those very people then sort of fancy themselves as uh, uh, explorers of the wilderness or, you know, discoverers of America and like to conquer peoples. So that's one element of what's going on in, this, in, in the period that I, that I study, which by which I mean the 1860s in that in that section of the book. Um, one of the disturbing um, uh, uh, consequences of a desire for African labor after the emancipation of the slaves, combined with this desire to conquer peoples for the hell of it. Uh, was the effort by these young lieutenants from the Navy to um, dominate the Boney Maroons. Now, they failed to do that. Um, I think that I make that clear, but they made an effort um, uh, of luring uh, Maroon peoples into the penal colony in the the 1860s, and uh, that effort largely collapsed because the French simply don't have... um, uh, command of the river, they can't navigate it. Um, there are some uh, natural obstacles to the French capacity to go and uh, and 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 dominate the Boney Maroon. But the larger question of race in the book, which I think is a very good question, um, is connected to this. Um, what I did try to argue um, in the my analysis of the 19th century was that essentially. Um, uh, there are 
um, French Guiana becomes a place that's really different from Martinique or, or Guadeloupe um, in the sense that um, those places are places where the master class remains uh, remains after emancipation. And so there's a white elite that can kind of act as a control on the, on the society. In French Guiana, um, both the... Um, uh, poverty of the master class and the decision to move a penal colony there means that um, there's basically a, a complete flight of all but a handful of the whites, uh, which makes the colony essentially too black for citizenship. And so um, um, that uh, really makes French Guiana really quite a different place than Guadeloupe or Martinique. And it's grouped legally uh, with colonies of what, what is sometimes called the second French empire, meaning uh, Algeria, West Africa, and so forth, rather than being uh, grouped uh, uh, with colonies that are slated for so-called assimilation to France. Um, so, um, so race was, uh, very important to, uh, the sort of political history of this colony, uh, in the aftermath of emancipation. As for, uh, what race is, I do think that there's a racialization of, of the felon, uh, with, without, which has nothing to do with the color of his skin, uh, in the early 19th century. And I think that that's, um, pretty visible in, in, in the language uh, in which felons are described. But of course, uh, the felon is racialized uh, as a, a, a kind of black person. So, um, so uh, or, uh, ways of thinking about uh, people of African descent clearly inform ways of thinking about um, uh, felons. That said, in French Guiana, there's a curious uh, uh, sort of difference between black criminals and white criminals and the way they're treated where black criminals are um, okay to use as domestic servants whereas uh, white criminals seem to require isolation in unusual places. So um, on the ground there, there are some interesting ways in which racial, racial categories functioned. Well, it's fascinating in your, in your study the way in which the processes of emancipation um, are always caught up with, uh, pro, you know, projects of re-enslavement. Um, and, you know, to my mind anyway, the, the problem of the freed slaves and the, and the, the bony uh, refer, you know, I was wondering to what degree they are necessarily about their race. Uh, could, a, yeah. could, a, could a black person um, be accepted as free or did they have to constantly be um, denied full citizenship and subjectivity um, by the by the colonial state. Yeah, I think there's a real difference. I, you're asking some good questions, and I, I hope I can come up with good answers to them. I think there's a real difference between the Creole population of French Guiana and the bony people, um, because I think there's a sense in which the French administrators interpret um, their own colonial structures of domination as the equivalent of civilization. So in a sense, the Creole population, uh, while black, has been subject to a form of civilization, whereas uh, the bony people have not been civilized, right? 
that's the way. And I and I think that those categories have um, uh, uh, an inf- unfortunate afterlife um, in the way. Um, well, uh, in the way people people think about the bony people. But um, in French Guiana, I mean, I think that there continues to be a kind of sense that the bony are, are somehow culturally inferior. That aside, um, in the book, um, it really looks like there is a very different status that emerges for the bony uh, after emancipation. They're really not French, uh, according to um, the way... Um, uh, the way they're being defined, at least in the period I study. Um, they are French with respect to the Dutch. They are French with respect to the English. But they have uh, the status of uh, I w- what elsewhere in the empire would be called an indigen. Indigen, the- we should translate that for me. <laughs> yeah, right. should indeed. An in- well, an indigenous person does not really have the same kind of... Um, uh, Connotation because an indigen is really a colonial subject, mm. uh, a person with uh, many fewer uh, rights who is often subject to a different kind of law. Um, and I think it's significant in this case because um, even though um, the, the bony people are discussed as French, they're discussed as French in a sense uh, with respect to other countries. In other words, this is you would extradite a bony from Suriname to French Guiana, but uh, there's no sense in the period that I study that um, the bony are French citizens with rights um, with respect to other with respect to the uh, other French citizens or uh, the government. I was curious to go back to that question of the productivity of this penal legal system. Um, I mean, there, you, you definitely are writing a history both of unfreedom and freedom together. Um, yes. But you're not writing a, a history of, um, let's say, the, the, you know, the productivity of unfreedom in the sense that, um, you know, does unfreedom produce freedom? Does unfreedom is in the sense almost of, let's say, a Marxist understanding of class, you know, that, that the class system produces unfreedom for, for one class in order to enrich the other and to allow it to have freedom. Um, there's a famous quote by a, a Berlin historian from the 19th century, Heinrich von Treitschke, and he said that there can be no culture without domestic servants. Um, sure. Being essentially, you know, he has to have servants or he can't produce great culture. Um, right. So there, there's what, that's one way of understanding the relationship of unfreedom and freedom, which again goes back to a kind of very productive, productivist uh, um, understanding. Um, I don't think you have this functional view of unfreedom, and yet you do see it as tied to the system of freedom uh, mm-hmm. in the, you know, in the sense of citizenship and, and, and um, legal rights and so on. Um, so I just wanted to set that up and, and just, you know, to hear what you had to say about the relationship of, of unfreedom and freedom. Um, also, perhaps the, the center and the periphery of, uh, you know, France and, and Guyana that's yeah, I mean, I think that it. I think there's. A, it's important to specify that uh, 
when you use the word productivity, you're thinking about economic productivity or cultural productivity in, in a positive sense, like here books, here's an orchestra, here's some musical pieces. And um, productivity um, in the book that I wrote is mostly about what the state produces. Mm. Um, and I think uh, that that might be helpful. Um, so with respect to the story of unfreedom, the book sort of traces a collapse between freedom and slavery. Uh, uh, in earlier chapters of the book, I talk about the relationship between, um, say, citizenship and civil death, for example, as an op- a meaningful opposition. And you could equally say that the opposition between freedom and slavery operated in the same period. Then um, it, it, it appears that in a variety of different domains, both in the story of the ex-convict in France and in the story of the colonial subject and in the story of the freed slave, a new kind of problem uh, or figure appears. And I was looking at different embodiments of this figure, who is a person who is not a slave in the sense that there's nothing left to be emancipated from, um, but who can't get out. Um, And of course, that isn't the case of every freed slave. I don't want to make, that's not my message. Um, But in in the cases that I study, um, I was particularly troubled by uh, the way that um, a whole... uh, range of uh, legal tools um, that either involved how to the the instruments for governing governing pieces of land or instruments for dismantling the legal person managed to uh, create profoundly unfree people in what seemed to be very modern ways and that this seemed to be happening in a broad uh, in, a, in, a, in a relatively broad field of cases, so in domestic France, in various parts of the empire, in the case of freed slaves in uh, uh, the so-called Ancienne Colonie, or the old French empire, there took shape in the uh, second half of the 19th century uh, uh, someone who was um, called free, uh, but who was subject to various forms of exceptional law, who had a dismantled legal personality, uh, and yet who who could not be, who could not appeal to for, for further freedom because there's nothing left to be freed from. Um, if we could, I want to bring in Hannah Arment at this point, um, because uh, you, you know, in the introduction, you, you do spend a bit of time um, discussing Hannah Arendt and, uh, and, and you're criticizing a certain notion that she has of, uh, let's say, a kind of citizenship and the nation as a sort of almost citadel um, around which uh, bad historical events have happened. Um, and you, you have a nice quotation, which I'll, I'll just cite here. Um, it is striking that Arendt feels obliged when writing of interwar refugees to attribute their predicament to the decline of the nation state, rather seeing their misfortune to arise from the nation state. Um, so uh, could you just say a little bit about, about Arendt, what your criticism is there, and perhaps sure. tied into our discussion about the relationship of freedom and unfreedom in let's say, this 
historical period and in relationship to the nation state? Okay. Well, um, in the part where I talk about um, Arendt, I talk about the the part, well, what you just read from comes from the um, totalitarianism, but I also talk about um, uh, her, uh, I also draw on um, her work on the French Revolution, and this, or more or less the same thing uh, comes uh, uh, comes out of both of these these works about different periods, which is that when she talks about um, uh, uh, violence, um, uh, violence, and also the oppression of people, she it's usually because of some kind of legal collapse. So, for example, um, when she uses examples of of what it means to be to lose one's rights, she always talks about the stripping away of a legal personality to expose something like nature, something like a mere a, a mere human or a slave. Uh, and similarly, the interwar refugee is a person who has been stripped of his legal personality, and she regards that as not as a legal problem, but as a problem about a failure of having, uh, as a case of non-law, as opposed to a legal product. Mm-hmm. So what it, it seemed to me that um, the uh, a striking characteristic of, of Arendt's way of thinking about um, vulnerable people was that she insisted that the problem lay in lack of law <laughs> rather than law. And so when I was making the point about the nation state, I was trying to say that we can think of these marginal people who were had no rights as products of legal systems rather than people who are enjoying a predicament because of an absence of law relevant to them. And in, in the same way, I think we can think about uh, homeless people, stateless people as legal products, not as people who whose exposure to violence results from a lack of status. <laughs> Um, yeah. Very good. Um, just as to, to bring things up to di- to today, um, I, I was curious. You've, you've obviously worked on this book um, in the aftermath of the uh, establishment of uh, an extra legal territory in Guantanamo Bay um, and the housing there of foreign fighters. Um, did, did that uh, enter into your thinking about any of these topics? I guess it, it made a lot of other people um, understand what I was talking about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> chief relevance was that I, I started mentioning things like I'm talking about the dismantling of the legal subject. I'm talking about these legal zones. And originally people didn't really know what I was talking about. And then I, it's a, at a certain moment, it became clear that um, I these sorts of problems had become uh, commonplace. I should say that um, I think uh, the, the case of, of of Guantanamo for me is just part of a really long story because those of us who study colonial empires know that um, the space of Guantanamo is a pretty obvious product of uh, colonial style law. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there are a lot of other instances of this that you could find in the past. I happen to study one. But rather than thinking of that as a kind of unique instance, I think that you can connect it to the story of colonial empires, bringing me to the point that if for those of, for those people who um, 
ask the question whether um, the United States is an imperial power, I would say that the answer lies uh, in the legal structure uh, in Guantanamo, among other things, because that legal structure connects our country to a much longer story about how colonial empires carve out territory to um, uh, manage uh, problems at home and also fill up empty places with exceptional laws. Well, that sounds like an excellent place to stop our uh, our discussion. I think that sums up very well um, some of the key points that you've made in the book. Um, so if, uh, I, I just want to ask a last question, which is just to sort of uh, um, um, look look uh, maybe in the future in terms of your own work. Um, do you want to tell us just a bit about what you may be working on now or what your next sure. project's going to be? So I'm working on a couple of things, but one thing that I'm working on right now is um, something about slaves living in Paris in uh, the late 18th century. And in this project, I'm pretty much trying to uh, reverse something that I, I talked about uh, in my in my first book. Um, so a lot of, as you mentioned, Todd, one of the things that I study in, in the book uh Empire and Underworld is how law moves overseas from metropolitan France into the colonies. And I thought it would be interesting for a second project to think about how to what degree law moves out of the colonies and into metropolitan France. So one of the things that I'm exploring in the new project is the way, uh, well, the question is, to what degree at the height of the French slave trade do French social and legal norms from the colonies move into France? Uh, and so the materials that I'm looking at there are, are legal old regime materials, chiefly. That sounds like um, a fascinating study. Yeah, and the second project is sort of connected to the first one as well, uh, in the sense that um, I'm exploring uh, a facet of identity that I became very interested in while working on uh, freed slaves and also convicts, in, which is to say, the name. So my entirely unrelated second well, a sort of second new project has to do with naming rituals um, in the revolutionary era. And I'm looking at name changes and people losing names and so forth. And it's a way of trying to get at um, the human, what it means to be a subject, um, which is something I explored in the first book, uh, just largely through what it means to have oneself dismantled. But in the new project on naming, I'm hoping to explore that from a different, from a different direction. Well, those sound like fascinating projects. I look forward to uh, to reading them, especially the one about the names interests me um, because uh, um, I'm, I'm always I'm always curious with uh, I mentioned revolutionary regimes and, and the importance of naming and name changing um, to revolution is quite a fascinating subject. So uh, anyway, Miranda, thank you very much for your time and your thoughts. Uh, it was a very interesting discussion. Oh, it was my pleasure, Todd. Thanks so much. 